fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to FGGGBT. This is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology and makes it a reality. We do that. We have the brain trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom and doctor of love, Dr. Michael Denon. Well, Dan, it is great to be here. I know our audience would be surprised if it wasn't great for me to be here, but just thought I'd you know, reinforce that. I'm very excited about this as we continue our journey in the space of love. What does love mean? How are we all attracted to each other? Looking forward to this conversation. I am, and I can't tell you how glad I am that you're engaged to this conversation, pun intended, because I want to get to the bottom of this. Uh, but we, got, we ca- cannot do that without our Casanova of the fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technology world, and that is our enigmatic engineer, Ben Siebser. Ben, where are you broadcasting from this week? This week, I'm in romantic Granary Square in London, which is the location of the headquarters of an exciting new DNA matching service. Well, I hope you're there, and I hope you find what you're looking for, Ben, because you deserve it. Um, and and the topic we're going to talk about today is love, as you mentioned. And we're going to use this great new Netflix show called The One. And this is a show about using a company that uses your genetics, your DNA, to find your perfect match. And as you mentioned, Denon, we've talked about love before. Um, arguably, we might be the world's leading po- fictional love experts, I would say. And that was because we did an episode on love. Love Potion Number 9, which is a show about how sound is very important to attractiveness. Well, how does that translate in this? Well, in this, we're going to find out that smell is equally as important, uh, probably more important than the obvious, of course. And so how do we do that? Well, this show uses DNA matching to find that there's the one, but this implies that there is a the one. And I think you really have to ask yourself, What does that mean? What is love? What is happiness? I don't want to get too esoteric here. I know, Denon, your favorite tea is not technology, but theory. But I got to say, what do we imagine for it? What is happiness? What is the perfect person? And I think happiness can differ throughout time. Uh, Help me out here, Denon. Well, happiness is definitely an interesting question, Dan, because I feel like it's one of those emotions and states that have a lot of underlying pieces that go into it. And what do I mean by that? I'm going to give just one quick, simple example. Sometimes you can be doing some really, really hard, painful work, Um, you know, whether it's in a sporting event or whether it's, you know, practicing your music and actually be happy while doing these things that in another context would seem to make you sad. So there are some very, very complex complex interactions going on here in your brain and complex design functions. And I know, Ben, you've been looking at the brain probably more closely than either of us. What complexity do you see with happiness? Yeah, so I think part of it is that we just, that happiness is different for everybody. You know, some people like, you know, you, you, know, you mentioned these difficult things like doing sports or uh, working out hard or solving difficult problems. But some people like to be lazy too. You know, some people just want to play video games or watch a movie. You know, there's all of these different kinds of, things that make people happy and what and there and then there's questions of whether you want a complimentary ha- uh, type of person for you to be happy with or someone who's the opposite of you or maybe you just don't want anybody because you prefer to be alone and doing what what you feel like doing you know there, there's all of this complexity and it's really hard to ask a person 
are they happy? Like what makes a person happy is, is a complicated thing. Uh, it's a complicated state of chemical in your brain that, you know, it, it's not easy to figure that out. You know, Ben, you said something that actually really struck me as what makes this super complex is you said some people like to be lazy and just play a video game or watch a movie. I find video games incredibly hard and not being lazy. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. But I do recognize, as you said, I think some people view playing a video game as lazy. So there's just a whole other level of complexity here that occurred in this conversation. Well, I appreciate that, Dan, because as a video gamer myself, I, I appreciate that you're saying I'm not lazy uh, in that pursuit. It is true. There is a lot of hard work potentially in video gaming as well. We shouldn't uh, denigrate that. <laughs> well, when you said lazy video games or some people, I thought you meant the entire American population is where I thought you were going with that. Sorry, America. Uh, it's kind of true. Um, but, you know, you talk about happiness. You're mentioning how complex it is for you to be happy individually. Now, imagine how complex it would be to match that with someone else. You know, what does some, what makes someone happy in a relationship is another question. Is it socioeconomic? Is it just companionship? Is it for sexual reproduction? Is it for sec recreational sex? These are all types of different things. Men and women want different things. Um, but in this, you know, they're, they're tying it to your DNA, which is that's really the tricky conversation here. But there is a little bit of science behind that. And I think... The chemical, the, the fundamental part of this show, correct me if I'm wrong here, Ben, um, is that chemicals are really what is attracting us, and it's based on our immune system. I'm going to put a, an article up on, on the website which t talks about how our immune systems are, are directly tied to our body odor, and it is that body odor that people are picking up on. I found this to be pretty incredible. Now, where, where did you go with this? Well, it's interesting because there's kind of two, we hear two bits of information in the show about this. We first hear that the initial research is done with pheromones and ants, and they figure out a way to genetically match ants based on their genetics, which then leads to how their pheromones work. And they figured out a way to now put this into humans. They mention a protein called CCDC25 which is a protein in humans. It's a very common protein. And it's also a protein that we currently don't know what the function of it is for. So I like that they've kind of picked out this part of human biology that we have yet to understand. And maybe, hey, maybe it is the love protein. We don't really know. Uh, so I, I like that. I like that they're, come, they're bringing in this real science and real, real protein names <laughs> to uh, explain how their technology works like that. I do think one of the challenges with this, though, Ben, as you pointed out, um, is they focus so much on the DNA coding for a single protein, which I think very much oversimplifies things. Now, we all know I am not a biologist, so I'll be the first to admit that. But as a physicist, one of my specialties is systems. And I think we have to acknowledge, and Dan, you alluded to this, the eternal nature versus nurture debate, which comes up for odd reasons in many of our shows, um, this, this sort of confluence of forces that act upon us. And our DNA does not actually determine everything about us. Um, and there is a lot of complexity, even to the state of the chemicals that are in your body at any given point. Let's face it, you can always be adding chemicals from different roots, positive and negative. So that level of complexity is added to the complexity of what makes happiness and is something I think the show probably should explore in a little more depth when it thinks about the ways it's going to do matching. 
Yeah, and to be fair, maybe their algorithm and technology has advanced since their initial study, and they're matching on more than just one protein uh, at this point in their in their uh, company and their matching services lifetime. But I also want to wonder about you know we talk about this nature versus nurture, but I do wonder if this raw you know DNA attraction that's just the strongest attraction ever you know maybe that can overcome some of your previous uh, nurturing such that you start acting properly or at least as the way your match would want you to act towards them just because this love is so strong. Well, I think, but, you know, I, I don't want to sound like the, the nerdy scientist here who's be like the robot who has no feelings, um, but I got to be the robot here who has no feelings because when you start looking at, we're talking about what happiness is. Happiness is one thing. What we consider love is something completely different, and it is just a complex biochemical reaction in our brains. Uh, you know, I, I hate to be the spoiler for people out there who, who love your romantic movies. If you want to believe that, you go ahead. But I'm going to give you the stark reality, and that is a biochemical reaction. But the upside to that is maybe it is the most complex biochemical reaction known to humankind, which would require a very specific combination to unlock it in the brain. And I think maybe that's what's going on here. And maybe there is something tied into the DNA. You know, let's take out environmental factors themselves, but is it possible that we could maybe be unlocking the most powerful chemical combination known to man? What do you think, Denon? Well, you know, I'm going to actually have to disagree with you slightly, Dan, while I agree with you at the same time, right? Clearly, there is a very complex biochemical state here behind love. And I do agree with you at the end of the day, all of this is biochemical, but I disagree with you that it's kind of, uh, how did you phrase it? I think very, uh, uh, what was it? Mechanical and robotic mm. um, and a stark depressing reality. Uh, personally, I'm just going to draw my simple analogy. Food, food is all biochemical, whether you like it or dislike it, what you eat, what you don't like. And yet I am living proof that the food you like can change over time and as a result of complex interactions. And you can actually even train yourself to like particular foods, um, believe it or not, having done that myself, um, where I realized Mexican food obviously is good because lots of people like it, even though I hated it, and now I love it. So there is, I think, still a very, very huge space here for the romantic movie effect, which is working hard at something to change the biochemical structure in your body to have a different reaction. We are a complex feedback system. So you're right. I don't know what we're unlocking. It is incredibly complex. It's all biochemical, but there's a lot of inputs and outputs going on here. And I hope what I said made some sense because it made perfect sense to me. Well, if I could pop in here really quickly, because I'm going to go with your food analogy here, Denon. Um, there is, there was a restaurant out here. You want to talk about love. I'm going to open up my heart to you and the audience here. There's a restaurant out here called Prado, which was out here in Los Angeles. It was my favorite restaurant. I, I ate there for almost a decade. Uh, the delicious food. One of the most delicious things I've ever eaten was goat cheese enchiladas. Now, I miss those every single day I'm alive. And I will tell you that I've never had a food that quite tasted like it, and I don't think I will ever have have another food in ever in my life that will taste quite like that. Is that love? I don't know. But in your analogy, I think it is. And I think there is a there is a specific chemical reaction that that brought out in me. Um, is it possible to have another food that I will love as much? Maybe so. But I, I don't know, Denon. Um, I, I feel like this is this. There is a chance that this could be a one of a kind combination. Uh, what do you think, Ben? You got to weigh in on this. 
Well, I, I, I too love food. Uh, I got, I gotta say, you know, there's a Mexican place around this, the corner from me called Broken Spanish that I also really, really enjoyed. And I definitely miss their, uh, tamales and other, uh, delicious, uh, treats immensely. And I can't have it anymore cause they, uh, closed down. So, you know, I get that longing and, it's interesting that uh, how much chemicals can affect our state of mind in that sense that we just are, we are what we, what we feel, what we eat, what we see. It's, but it's all just a chemical reaction in our brains. Well, then let me ask you one question here before you answer that. Um, because one of the things I forgot to mention that I also want you to address here is you said you can make yourself like certain foods, right? Well, if, you, if we're extending that analogy to love or to people or to companionship, making yourself like someone or love someone is very different than what they're selling in this, which is a natural occurrence of this biochemical reaction of love or whatever that we call it. Um, and if we're talking about food, making yourself like a food is not the same as loving a food straight off the bat. So you can wrap all that up into, into, into your answer. Well, there, there, yes, there's a lot there, Dan. I wanted to just point out real quickly, both the way you and Ben spoke about your food points out that I, I, it's this weird phrase. We say, oh, it's just a biochemical reaction. Yet look at the passion you two had for your restaurants, right? Biochemical reactions are not just. They're powerful. And we need to uh, really appreciate the power of biochemical reactions and say they are celebratory biochemical reactions, not just biochemical reactions. That's just where I'm going with that. I mean, heroin's a strong biochemical reaction as well. I don't know that it's necessarily a positive thing. Uh, you know, so I'm just putting that out there. Right. Well, not everything strong is positive, but it can be. And, and I think part of what you're getting at, right, which I really like, is this issue of how our tastes change with time. And this is the layer I put over the DNA. Um, maybe make yourself like a food wasn't quite the right word, but we definitely have our tastes change in time. What we like, the biochemical reactions in us are more than just our DNA. They're the genes that are represented by our DNA because genes turn on and off, which lead to lots of different proteins coming in and out. They're the way the environment impacts our biochemical soup, if you will, to keep our food analogy going. And so... To predict it on the DNA is not where I would necessarily go scientifically. Yes, the chemicals are important. So I might just use some other um, you know, chemical markers in the blood, a different complex protein combination. Maybe it's also involving the sugars and carbohydrates and other chemicals floating around. So I think you're right, Dan, that this is a powerful biochemical situation. I just question the power of DNA in this particular situation, given how things change over time with our bodies. No, I think that that's really true. And I also think, you know, it's an interesting point here because you got to talk about the DNA. I think you do need other chemical markers because one of the interesting things that I learned, uh, you know, scent is a powerful part here. I think it's the underlying sense that we're talking about here. And there, we have lots of things that are put into smell or olfactory sense that really take, uh, take control here. And maybe one of the markers is, you know, where people are in their life or what's going on with them. You know, the DNA may say that your immune system is one way, but maybe you're stricken down with a horrible disease and it totally destroys your immune system, changes your body odor, and all of a sudden you're not attractive to that person uh, that you're supposedly genetically DNA attracted to. But also, you know, the biochemistry that people give off varies during their life. It varies during menstrual cycle. For example, women give off a different body odor when they're ovulating 
dating um, versus when they're not. Um, men, you know, there was this great scientific experiment. You know, this is obviously college age, uh, which is, you know, a little different. People in their college are a very different part of their life than other people. But they had men wear a shirt for two days and then women rated how it smelled. And that was that was really based on how different the person, the, the man's genes were to the female's genes. There's a lot going on here, I think. Um, ben, what do you think about this? I, I think it's an interesting thing to bring up that our, you know, our smells change over time and are uh, based on our life experience, based on all this sort of stuff. But I do wonder, you know, the genetics are still a component of it. And I do wonder if a service like the one would be able to overcome at least some of that by narrowing in on maybe there's being a specific set of uh, scents that are consistent, that are always there, that aren't necessarily um, affected as much by what we eat or what we smell. And and us as the people falling in love based on this scent, you know, maybe we get past the garlic breath or the... Impossible, Ben. I, I'm impossible. The, the, I'm already called. <laughs> you know, past the garlic or onion breath and... And we can and we can smell that underlying pheromone that is what our brain is really looking for for love. I, I do like that underlying structure, Ben, that you mentioned, because, you know, there is there are some things that are long term and stay. And so that's kind of a cool way to think about it. Um, I mean, I did I did realize as we were talking about this, one of the reasons I brought sort of working out or doing physical activities, which referred back to the earlier um, discussion of happiness, you know, working hard can lead to happiness. I think people, most people I know who are in very long-term relationships understand the value of hard work that goes into it. It's not as simple as, oh, I'm attracted to the person and then it just works forever. This works for romantic relationships as well as friendships, right? Friendships that are long-lasting Take work. They're not just a simple, oh, I like the person and it's easy and done. And I think that's also biochemical, but it's a different type of biochemical that comes into this. Well, I, I think so. I, I, I like the biochemical aspect because olfactory is, is one of my favorite senses. First of all, I love the word olfactory. Second of all, I really think it's important because as humans go, the first, sen the first sense we really use to create those bonds between other humans is our smell. You know, when a baby is born, it's the smell that, that that's how they know that their mom or their, you know, the, the father, the mother or whatever their parents are. Let's say the gender non-specific. Whatever their whoever their parents or whoever's taking care of them, they know their smell and they're comforted by that. Uh, this is you know I think this is also true uh, when it comes to mating. There's you know there's also chemicals that people of your own family give off so that you're not attracted to them, and this occurs in the animal kingdom as well. So it's also used as you know to detract people from from that type of of attraction. But it, it's a it's a very messy endeavor because human beings, especially modern human beings, we alter our basic smell in a lot of ways. And here's a great quote that I read in, in an article I'm going to put up on the website. The favorable smells that make up a person's scent are more a combination of their body wash, shampoo, deodorant, fragrance, hair product, fabric softener sheets, and other scented products used throughout everyday life. While there is uniqueness to a person's scent, there are many other things that influence the final product. Especially here in the Western world, we have that underlying scent, but we tend to cover it up. And sometimes, and I can tell you this from, from personal experience, that scent that they use to cover it up is very attractive. You know, there's a lot of perfumes. That, that really um, can, can cause a, a heavy attractiveness as well. Um, so there's a lot going on here. It gets very messy, Denon. So I don't know that we can parse out that underlying scent. 
Well, Dan, I have to tell you something, a, a, if I might, a, a small historical story from my lab. I will not reveal the name of the company. As people know, I do foam research. We want to do some research on some everyday products. I was trying to get a, a contract with the company. They sent us some of their samples of body wash and other materials that foam. One of them was for men. And literally, I do not kid you, in the list of ingredients was female attractant. Um, <laughs> that is what it was called. That's um, funny. You cannot make this stuff up. That's good. Um, That's good. That's really and, funny. You know, <laughs> we, it was just something that you you just, yeah, it's, it's really bad. But there it was. Um, so to your point, Dan, I, I think it is an interesting feature that we recognize the importance of smell. And we're trying to chemically design those. I would argue that this is the other side of the one's business. So the one is trying to identify a constant underlying smell that's maybe there no matter what, whereas other companies are out there trying to create a universal smell um, and cause love, much the way sound in Love Potion number 9 was used. So there's the detect versus cause effect going on here, a very common two-edged sword in science. Um, ben, which would you rather engineer, do you think? Um, something that caused it or something that detected it? Well, before you, before you answer that, Ben, I want to make a very clear distinction here, Denon, because um, you mentioned that this, these smells cause love and the sound from Love Potion number 9 cause love. I would argue they cause lust, which is a very different almost a much more temporary condition and I think a very different chemical composition. So I think, Ben, I think that F that's also enough. to be considered. Yeah. Yes, yeah. fair enough, Dan. Well, I think from an, em uh, an emistry, a chemistry perspective uh, and from an engineering perspective, it's a lot easier to create the, the broad, lusty version because that's just easier to test. Like, it's a lot <laughs> easier to uh, make a, a soap right. that uh, people find, a lot of people find nice than... You know, we see that in the one, you know, how do you if if there's not a lot of people for everybody because it's based on genetics, it's a much tougher problem. You need a lot more data, whereas you can just focus group a new shampoo. Uh, no problem. What I think the interesting thing about that, you know, about that is we're just trying to generate this chemical reaction. And I think chemistry, you know, it's it really can make you do crazy things. The, the changes in your brain can be very powerful. And I think if you were offering something like this, it is a very powerful offer, which is why I find this concept to be so interesting. If you could really create that attraction, create, find that person for you. Um, but, you know, we see in this, in this show, the way to do that is they tap into these DNA databases. Now, I don't mean to go dark and cynical, but that's the way I go. The thing that kind of struck me about this is this is a really good way to get people to submit to a large DNA database that could then be abused. I think that is a, if anything, this is a warning sign that if you're, well, I mean, if you're going to sell something, you know, right now, you know, a lot of people are using DNA databases to find out their family histories and the, the databases are sizable, but not large. I think if you were to say, we can find the perfect match for you, the database might con might contain every single person on the planet. What do you think about that, Denon? Well, first of all, I will just have to say, um, this goes right to, I think, their core premise that's flawed. I don't think there is just one person. Evolution and everything we've been talking about, complex chemistry, um, really 
suggest that there's a range of people. It's all about ranges. And I know we can go into that in more depth. I think, yeah, you know, numerically, this is a scary number. Um, I know, Ben, you've just been much closer to the calculations. I'm curious what you're thinking about how many people we really need in this database. What's going on here? How do we get to the one? Yeah, so the one is an interesting concept because it implies that at there's one out of 7.8 billion uh, is the one for you. And if you do the math on that, you get into situations where uh, on this earth, if your odds of finding a match are one in 7.8 billion, then 36% of the world will never find a match because statistically speaking, it doesn't exist. And if in your life you've met 10 million people, uh, 10 million people, which is a huge amount, uh, you have a 0. 0.00, or I'm sorry, you have a 0.1% chance of having found that special someone. So the size of the database is just crazy. Like 10 million people, you're only going to match, you know, you're going to have a one in a thousand success rate with that size of a database. And so the numbers just are, are crazy at that odds. Well, let me, let me just put that into perspective for you. Okay. Um, the odds of winning the Tennessee lottery are one in two, 292 million. The odds of getting struck and killed by lightning are one out of 2.3 million. Um, the odds of dying by coming in contact with a venomous plant is one in three, 3.4 million. So it, there must be something else going on here because though you would be saying that it's easier to win the lottery than it would be to find the one. And I'm guessing you can find several people on this planet who claim I've been duped in my, my I will say that right off the bat, in my opinion, have been duped in believing that they've found the one, or have they, and we're getting at this, uh, you know, we're attacking this incorrectly, but I love those statistics, Ben. They're, <laughs> they're very interesting. Yeah. Um, now, let me say this. So there's a lot of issues here. You know, we're talking about how difficult it is to find the one. There's a lot of people on the planet. There's other weird mitigating factors here that we have to consider, which is, what if you lose the one? What if that person dies? What do we do about genetic twins? You know, is there no hope if you've lost the one, if there's only one person for you? Um, you know, what is going on here? I think that this is, these things seem kind of too, is this too bleak to overcome? I mean, are, is it that dark out there? You know, I, I don't want to say, you know, cynical as I am, I don't want to believe that it is that dark to find companionship. What do you think, Ben? Am I right here? I mean, it it, obvi it obviously can't be because if if we go by the the amount of people that normal people meet in the world and the amount of people that are in happy uh, productive relationships, it clearly can't be the one. You know, no one is searching has searched through all 7.8 billion people in the world to find their one best match. You know, most people meet thousands of people at best, and so clearly your odds of finding someone compatible are probably in maybe the hundreds or thousands. And so it isn't bleak. It can't be bleak because lots of people get together. Lots of people are in happy relationships and the civilization continues. Yeah. Dan, speaking as an experimentalist, there is clear evidence that it is more than the one. I, I mean, I really feel this idea of the one is this nice romantic myth. You referred earlier to the romantic movies where you meet the one, the perfect person. Um, and it is something we like to think about, um, that there is the one. 
But, you know, life is really designed um, around lots of distributions, right? And there is a range of things. And this is actually most consistent with everything we've said about it being complex um, chemical, biochemical reactions. It would be very unlikely, given the complexity, that there's just one match. There is certainly a range of matches. And a lot of people would fall into a very high, you know, I don't know, greater than 95% compatibility and from a biochemical perspective. And when we talk about happiness, I'm willing to bet you know, there's even uh, more ranges, but I'm not even sure where you want to draw those lines. So I think I think there really has to be more than one, and or this just all falls apart. And I think the show's data, Ben, if I recall correctly, might even prove that there's more than one. Is that right? That's exactly right, Dan. We get some great data from the show. Uh, the first time they run their algorithm, they run it on 100,000 samples, and they get 98 matches. This tells us that the odds are actually one in 100 million not one in 7.8 billion. It still seems pretty stark. But what it tells us also is that when we see some billboards that sh says they've made 10 million matches already, this tells us that they have, at this point, they have about almost 40 million customers. And at a database of that size, 40 million, which is admittedly a lot of people, but it's not that many people, that at this point, you have almost a 30% chance of finding a match if you add your DNA to the database. So things are actually looking pretty good at that point. Uh, so it's not so bad anymore. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, the thing you mentioned there is that you have to be in the database. As I mentioned, what a great way to get people to add to this database that can be abused by, by saying, we need to have a large database, put it in here, or someone, you may not find your match or someone else may not find your match. Love is something that I think you can motivate people with. Um, and, and I think, you know, the one, it's a marketing thing. I think that that is exactly right. So I'm guessing but if I'm if I'm understanding your numbers correctly, there has to be more than the one. So what would that number be? Do you think? That's right. It should be the eighty uh, or the seventy-eight if we want to be perfectly precise, <laughs> uh, based on the population of the Earth. <laughs> That's how many how many people should be compatible with you at any given time. Well, I, I love that number. It gives us a little hope, Dan. But I would actually argue the show is still falling short. So there must be a mistake in their numbers somewhere. They probably should have matched more people because I think there's way more than 80. That's just my personal opinion. I'm going to throw that out there, unscientifically. I think that's true to some degree. But based on their statistics, it, it, it can't be. Maybe their algorithm gets more forgiving over time. But if, if they only find 100 matches in, in 100,000 samples, that is what it is. Well, I love that. I love that the numbers are what they are. I just think the show is lying. I mean, they these people are all evil, Ben, and everything in the show is a lie. So I bet you those numbers are a lie. No spoilers there because it wasn't specific. But um, if it's considered a spoiler, they're all evil. It's certainly true that they they have some ulterior motives, and I would not be surprised if they're goosing the match uh, percentages later on uh, as they are growing because they're not getting matches fast enough. And you do need to have, you know, a, a certain if you have 80 or 78 potentials, how are they picking that the one that they're sending to you? You know, I mean, I think that there's a lot of questions here that we need to think about. I mean, the 80 is a good number. You know, we don't think of who's in our age range. I think maybe there might be 20 within your age range. But if you want a, the one equivalent, let's say, I think you really have to go with what you said, Denon. I think that the compatibility index is probably a much more realistic way to look at this. Can you be happy with someone you're maybe 80 to 85 percent happy? 
happy with, so to speak, 80 to 85% in love. Maybe it doesn't unlock that in love. I don't know that we definitely answer the question of what love is versus happy and lust. I think that's a good question. But I think you can find someone that you're reasonably happy with. And you know, while that is not a rosy end to this, I do think that it is an ending. It's, you know, it's, it's about as rosy as we get sometimes, definitely as rosy as I get. So I'm going to give that to you. That is my gift to you. But we've arrived at our errors, additions, and omissions section, things we want to talk about, but we didn't quite get to. Denon, is there anything about the one that we missed that you want to talk about? I have two things, Dan. I'd like to point out that it's very fascinating. If everything is smell-based, which they claim um, that people can meet over the TV, um, well, the internet, actually, sorry, not the TV, and immediately have that attraction, which says that what they're marking for has to go beyond smell. It has to go to the visual cues, the sound cues. So it gets even more complicated. And the other thing is, I'm, I'm even less bleak than you, Dan. Um, going back to my comment of, of working on changing things, right? As soon as we admit there's a distribution, right? Your base state might be 85% compatible with the person you meet. But the working on the relationship could change that enough that the underlying oneness becomes 100% because you're shifting around on this base and perturbing things. So I'm even more optimistic at this moment than you. So I think that those are, those are great points. Uh, ben, is there anything that we missed that you wanted to talk about? Well, I, I do want to paint a somewhat rosy picture on the 80. Uh, you know, once you have a, a database of 460 million people, you got a 99% chance of uh, finding a match in there. So that, that's pretty good. Um, but I also want to just think about, in general, the societal pressure that would come from a service like this. Like, you get your match, and you just feel like you have to make that one work because it is your the one. And so I really wonder if you even have to do anything or can you just tell people like if you have this mythology around you, can you just tell people this is your match and it'll work anyways because it's a, you think it's supposed to work? Oh, I think that's a great point. You mean, so the power of suggestion is what actually causes this to work instead of an actual DNA hard science fact of this. Exactly. I mean... If this is your one trance at true love, you're not going to screw it up. <laughs> I think that's a great way to sell it. I think you should work for their marketing team, Ben. Um, but if we've missed anything, you know, if there's anything else you want to talk about, we're easy to get a hold of. You can find the show on social media at FGGBTPod. We're on Facebook at FGGBT. But you can get in touch with us individually. Denon, where can people find you? Well, people can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Just flip my name. It's at Denon Michael. And then if you're looking for me on Facebook, you got to stick in a prof at Prof Denon Michael. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at B Seepser. How do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn, and on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. Let's remember that love is a very, very powerful emotion, and it can affect people in very different ways. As the great Huey Lewis once said, the power of love is a curious thing, makes one man weak, make another man sing. So remember, you want to be a superhero and not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, ftriplegbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there ftriplegbt.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version, depending on what you like. We got it for you, and if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.